And now to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Aaron Shankerman. He is a practicing cardiologist with Providence Heart Clinic at the Oregon Clinic Gateway. And his practice scope includes a variety of topics, including atherosclerosis assessment, vascular medicine, lipid management, and uh, preventive cardiovascular medicine. Dr. Shankerman earned his medical degree from Northwestern uh, before going to internal medicine residency at University of California, San Francisco. Then did fellowship in cardiology at Sutter Health in San Francisco. And finally, fellowship in interventional cardiology at my hometown, University of Wisconsin in Madison. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Shankerman. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it is a real uh, honor and privilege to be back in Portland uh, and giving this talk. After uh, 12 years in, uh, in interventional cardiology, I come from the perspective of uh, the trenches, so to speak. So it's been a, a really nice opportunity to take a step back and think about um, ways uh, to think about treating disease before it starts. And that's how I got into prevention. So um, hopefully uh, this will be an interesting uh, talk for me to give and for everybody, if I can get my slide to go forward. Okay, um, the goals um, are to give sort of a whirlwind tour in that respect and to review the impact of cardiovascular disease, specifically atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease on morbidity and mortality in the US. Identify the key factors and predictors of this disease, optimize its identification and review treatment guidelines and emerging data, uh, most specifically as it uh, relates to hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. And we're going to talk a little bit and make a distinction between primary and secondary prevention, depending on where you're coming from at the time that you see the patient. Um, and then I wanted everybody to think about, um, especially in light of what's happened um, over the last year to year and a half, um, and I think this is part of the Grand Rounds um, goal as well for the, for the organization, to think about um, how to time these kinds of discussions, how to frame them, um, who we might be including and excluding from these kinds of conversations and who we might be missing. You know, what are our opportunities to improve healthcare in the country? Um, and what are our roles as individuals and, and what role might our organization play uh, in improving uh, our preventive outcomes? Because we all have this patient. This is someone that came from uh, the Providence Medical Group. In, under the excellent care um, of, of one of our physician partners and uh, saw me two weeks after his heart attack despite that excellent care. Um, and uh, we're seeing him now um, and he's doing very well, but we have a 59-year-old man uh, who has sort of a metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, hypertension with left ventricular hypertrophy, although well-controlled, um, GFR just on the lower limits of uh, up on the upper limits of stage three kidney disease with a little bit of protein in the urine, unremarkable cholesterol panel, a normal sinus rhythm on EKG. And if we calculate his 10-year risk for coronary atherosclerosis disease events, uh, we get a 26.5% 10-year risk of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, or stroke. Um, and we'll talk about how to calculate that a little later in the talk, but I just wanted to sort of put a case with this concept um, when we're seeing these patients and they're doing well to sort of think to ourselves, you know, what is this person really at risk for? 
and are when when the patient comes in with their concerns, are we making sure that their concerns and our concerns are all on the table so that we're doing everything we can at every visit to save lives? Um, <clears throat> as we know um, from reading uh, the lay press in the last year, life expectancy has sort of plateaued uh, in our country over the last five years. Um, if we look uh, going back to 1860, uh, we had our first decrease in mortality, I'm sorry, our, our decrease in life expectancy secondary to the Civil War, um, not unexpectedly, and then did pretty well <clears throat> for over 50 years until uh, influenza caused another dip in the population and then did very well <clears throat> for the last 100 years for a multitude of reasons. Um, <clears throat> that we don't need to go into, excuse me, today. But <clears throat> over the last five years, due to a number of different factors that have been more difficult uh, to really identify, we've had a flattening of our um, longevity. Um, negative societal trends, diet, lifestyle, high medical costs, increasing rates of suicide, drug use, I don't think anybody knows uh, exactly why, but there's certainly, I think everyone would agree that there's room for improvement in our health outcomes. Um, and that goes for all our communities. And according to this article that I put on the right here, this may be especially true um, for minority communities. Leading causes of death as of 2019, um, are, are still heart disease and cancer, but if you add up heart disease and stroke, which are both basically cardiovascular manifestations of disease, you can see that they are uh, right up top. Um, and that's been true over the last several years. Um, myocardial infarction and stroke mortality in the US in terms of absolute numbers, um, you know, over 600,000 um, stroke, 150,000. To put that into perspective, in light of the pandemic that we all um, are, are here experiencing, um, we had about 400,000 deaths in 2020 in the US, and that's 118 per 100,000 population. Um, and so those numbers may not be exact as, uh, you know, once things get recounted in 2021, et cetera, but you can just get a sense of the scale of the mortality risk of cardiovascular disease. And this is probably my favorite slide of the talk. It comes from uh, Scientific American. Um, and just to sort of put into perspective what we've been experiencing with COVID mortality um, in the last year is very similar in terms of numbers on a weekly rate um, of patients who die of cardiovascular uh, complications. And so you can see there is really only two times uh, during the whole COVID pandemic, once in April and once in November, where the weekly death rate surpassed that of uh, atherosclerosis or heart disease uh, death rates and cancer, which is not to say that COVID was not a big deal. It was a huge deal, but there are other things that are affecting our society on a more routine basis that certainly uh, don't always get the attention that we'd probably like to give it. So I thought this slide was very interesting in that regard. Um, the risk factors for atherosclerosis, 
um, and I'm sure most of you see patients with these problems, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, family history of premature coronary artery disease, um, being male greater than 55 or female greater than 65 or tobacco use. Just a reminder, uh, tobacco is still bad for you. Um, life expectancy for smokers is at least 10 years shorter than for non-smokers and quitting smoking before the age of 40 reduces the risk of dying from smoking relating di related disease by about 90%. Um, you know, in my, in my career, I've had sort of the, a really neat opportunity to help a lot of people stop smoking. Unfortunately, I've met them in the cath lab and they've already had a heart attack. Um, and then seeing them longitudinally for years later, that's one of the things that they're most proud of. Um, but in patients who haven't had something like that happen, that conversation can be harder to have. Um, and so the purpose of this slide is just to give you just some talking points um, to talk about with your smokers. And it's still the leading preventable cause of death in the United States. Um, this is a newer slide. Um, we talk about the traditional risk factors, and there's now a group of factors that we call risk enhancing factors. And without reading through all these, it's a lot of things that probably make some intuitive sense to people who practice internal medicine, uh, or cardiology, vascular medicine, what have you, um, of sort of knowing that people with kidney disease, inflammatory diseases, certain ethnicities, certain lipid panels, certain body types may have increased risk that we haven't yet quantified, and we have this talk with patients all the time, but we know are present. Um, LP little a, uh, is another one that's kind of interesting um, and maybe people have questions about this at the end but these are are now considered appropriate to include right in our sort of global assessment of a patient when we're thinking about risk of cardiovascular disease um, all told um, and i apologize if this slide shows a little bit blurry uh, our prevalence that we're talking about in terms of cardiovascular disease, about 30 million adults in the U.S. with cardiovascular disease, 50% um, of our population with hypertension, 12% uh, with hyperlipidemia, a little over 10% with diabetes, that's 34 million people, um, and 14% of uh, people are smoking, which is much less than it was years ago, uh, but still a highly prevalent uh, problem. So, the purpose of today's talk in part is to talk about primary prevention. And um, I think this is gonna be a good exploration uh, of kind of touching on all of the different kinds of things we should be talking uh, to our patients about, um, you know, in the office or elsewhere uh, when it comes to prevention of the complications of atherosclerotic disease. When I say primary prevention, I'm talking about um, preventing something from happening that's never happened before. So we're talking about patients who might have underlying disease, but who have never had an event. They've never had a heart attack. They've never had a stroke. They've never had claudication. They've never had a blocked limb uh, or anything like that. And when we talk about secondary prevention, those are patients who have had an event um, and we're trying to prevent another event. And so the thing, the steps we take may be a little bit more drastic in those kinds of patients, but I think it's important to start here because everything that applies for secondary prevention certainly applies to primary prevention. Um, and so there's this little wheel that I like uh, to have around the office uh, to think about. Um, again, I won't read it, but just kind of thinking about everything from physical activity to medications to lifestyle. Ways to identify risk. Um, you know, obviously we see and talk to the patient, take a detailed history. 
Um, labs include fasting lipid panel. There's some lipid NMR um, that some of us uh, use. The data on that is not entirely uh, complete. Um, hemoglobin A1C, CRP, uh, GFR, take a good family history. We can look at physical exam for tendons and thomas. We can check blood pressures. I always check blood pressures in both arms in my patients initially uh, when I see them. Uh, calcium scoring, we'll talk about a little bit more. Carotid uh, intimal media thickness or ultrasound. And then other uh, diagnostic imaging, non-dedicated. One of the um, things that I think as internists that we can really do to help um, raise awareness about diseases when we look at some of these things like chest x-rays, CT scans, abdominal CTs, MRIs, etc., and we see sequela of atherosclerosis is to put that out there into the medical record that we're seeing it. It's not always part of the conclusion, but oftentimes we'll see, you know, um, you know, someone goes into the emergency department and they might have appendicitis, um, but oh, by the way, their aorta is um, you know, mildly dilated at 3.1 centimeters, um, and they have, um, you know, calcific plaque in the abdominal aorta. And that might go unnoted because it wasn't the main purpose of the study, but it has taught us that that is a patient with atherosclerosis who is at much increased risk for adverse uh, event rate later uh, in life. And that is an opportunity uh, when sitting with the patient to sort of upgrade the problem list and have a discussion with the patient about, you know, diseases that we found and shifting that patient's goals from one to say, you know, dealing with things that are symptomatic versus uh, dealing with things that might be prevented based on those findings. And that is a difficult conversation to have, but it's really helpful. And I don't know if you can see my uh, pointer here, but what I'm pointing to on the bottom uh, left of the screen is this is a calcium score done. Um, where we're actually looking to sort of highlight calcium buildup in the wall of the aorta. But in this in this patient here, there isn't any. In this patient here, this patient has a high calcium score. There's calcium around the rim. But we could have seen this on a scan that was done to look at somebody for back pain or, you know, uh, pulmonary edema, what have you. These things still show and we often miss them. Um, so. Primary prevention, uh, just to shift here, um, we're talking about preventing something from happening that's never happened before to a patient, and that's a difficult conversation to have. And so when you're talking to people about lifestyle and meds and all these kinds of things that aren't going to necessarily make them feel better, I think it's important that we put it into a context that we understand and our patients understand. So what I think the, the latest guidelines have done that's helpful um, is to basically talk about all the different aspects that go into cardiovascular disease risk, and then try to put it into um, a, a cartoon of how we can describe people in different sort of groups and then make some general decisions on care based on those groups. And so when we're talking about assessing for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in each age group, we're talking not only about one thing like lipids or blood pressure or family history, but we're using all of these things to put the patient into a risk group and then decide on multiple aspects of their care, like when to pull the trigger and treat hypertension, when to pull the trigger and treat hyperlipidemia, or when to pull the trigger and treat cholesterol that actually looks normal 
but maybe posing that particular patient a risk. And so these new guidelines have incorporated some of those sort of clinical changes. And the, the piece that I want to highlight is this risk calculator that I see in a lot of notes um, from our internal medicine colleagues. And also we try to calculate in cardiology for uh, patients in whom it's appropriate. And basically just taking basic clinical things that we know about a patient, their um, their blood pressure, their systolic blood pressure, their total cholesterol, HDL, their gender, whether they're a smoker, what their age is, what their race is, and whether or not they have diabetes, and coming up with a 10 and lifetime, a 10 year and a lifetime risk score based on that. And at the bottom of the slide, if if you're not doing this, there's a link um, to how to do this. It's it's pretty simple. Um, actually, even Epic has a dot phrase dot ASCVD, and it'll calculate it for you, provided that the Providence system has input you know, the values that are needed, like, for example, the cholesterol uh, into into that. If not, you can have an app on your on your phone and that that's helpful. Um, it's been very helpful for me to sit down with patients and really discuss with them that risk, because if you're talking about treating cholesterol, that's normal, but it, it's nice to have a number. And so we get into this intermediate and high risk group where we're starting to talk about cholesterol management and I'm going to delay that and talk about that specifically in a, in a later slide. But just to sort of put this into context, we're going to use all of those clinical factors, come up with the risk score, use our risk enhancing factors, see if that influences it up or down. And then if we're still not sure, there are other non-invasive things to do, such as calcium scoring, which is a non-contrast based CT scan to see if the patient has evidence of chronic uh, atherosclerosis and calcium deposition in the walls of their uh, arteries. And if that's the case, that may move a patient from a lower risk to a higher risk or a higher risk to a low risk. Um, and that might influence the patient's interest in listening uh, to our recommendations, or it may actually even in some cases change our recommendations. Uh, and so that's sort of a thought process that you can go through. And I'm going to go through everything else that's on this slide as the talk goes on. A little bit more on calcium scoring. We know that we can use it to help assess risk because of a, a big study done about 12 years ago that basically showed that as the calcium score increases, the MACE rate or the major adverse cardiovascular event rate increases over over five years. And so you can either look at it linearly or um, in a bar graph, uh, but significant increase in risk as calcium scores go up. So to review, in primary prevention, we're talking about evaluating our patients, identifying their non-modifiable risk factors, um, identifying their modifiable risk factors and risk enhancing characteristics that we talked about, um, risk stratify them for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease using the calculator, um, dedicated or non-dedicated imaging, stress testing, ankle brachial index, calcium scoring, and sometimes even coronary angiography, depending on what those find, and then treating the patient according to guidelines when feasible. Um, and we're probably all familiar with JNC8 uh, hypertension updates, the 2018 ACC AHA lipid update, um, and then I'll talk a little bit more about um, some newer diabetes uh, research that's thought-provoking. So first things first, uh, primary prevention. So we're talking about lifestyle um, 
And when we're talking about lifestyle, we're talking about quitting tobacco, alcohol in moderation, um, which in many studies has been associated with improved blood pressure control. We're talking about a diet that in general is a Mediterranean diet that's generally high in fibers, vegetables, and fruits, and low in things like saturated fats and simple sugars. Um, there's lots to be read about this, but data in terms of hard outcomes is, is sort of scarce. But we do these things because they do help us control lipids and they do help us control blood pressure. Whether or not they're associated with a decreased event rate is less clear. I just want to put that out there. Um, and then aerobic exercise uh, is helpful also for controlling these kinds of things. 150 minutes a week of moderate activity or 75 minutes uh, a week of intense activity. Um, Hypertension uh, control is very important. We can see in this slide, um, which I think is fascinating, that at each, at each age, right, you're at increased risk for ischemic heart disease. Um, and that risk increases with blood pressure. So even patients who are in their 80s, right, may benefit in terms of the risk of cardiovascular disease um, with good blood pressure control. Um, however, their risk will not go to that of a 40 to 49 year old. And you can see that in this slide. Um, so uh, with, with each decade, you have a, a very significant increase in risk and an equally interesting uh, linear increase um, in risk as blood pressure increases by 20 uh, millimeters of mercury. Such to the point, for example, that a 40-year-old with normal blood pressure is at one-eighth the risk of a 40-year-old with stage 3 hypertension. And we can do a very good job with blood pressure, but it's it is difficult. The SPRINT trial five years ago demonstrated this, um, and I show this slide to show not that not not to talk about the differences in outcomes with intensive versus standard blood pressure control, but to show that in both groups, they were able to achieve very statistically meaningful decreases in blood pressure over time. Now, that's difficult and requires, you know, multiple different kinds of things, which is beyond the scope of this talk. But just to say that um, in both groups, we can get it is possible to control blood pressure longitudinally. Um, in, whether you're going for 120 or whether you're going for, it, it was 140, but now would be 130, which we'll talk about. Um, it is possible to do that over five years. And if you do that, it is associated with a significant decrease in event rates. This study was specifically designed to show that intensive management decreased event rates um, but even st even the standard group did not have a lot of events, um, which is the reason that I'm showing this slide. Um, and treating 61 patients with a blood pressure goal of 120 um, saves a significant number of deaths. So this study and others have led to a change that I want to point out in the way we define hypertension in our country. Uh, to stage one hypertension now being over 130 millimeters of mercury, whereas when I was in medical school, this was clearly over 140 with stage one, 160 was two, and 180 was three. Everything's come down now. Um, and so 
Whether or not to treat depends on other clinical factors, which we'll talk about. But I want to point out that if we, with this new definition, uh, we have a lot more patients at risk uh, to identify. And the data in terms of how good we are um, in general with controlling blood pressure is um, leave some room for improvement, um, which I, I have to admit, I see in my practice all the time. Um, it's always disappointing when my patients come back and their blood pressure isn't controlled. And, and sometimes there are reasons for that, um, but I think it does sort of speak uh, true uh, to the data. Um, that less than half of adults with hypertension have their hypertension under control. Um, it got it was getting better for a while, and then now it's kind of leveled out. Um, and this is true. This is sort of more true in certain um, community communities at risk or minority communities um, where their the chance of their cholesterol being controlled is a little bit lower. Um, and again, probably a multitude of reasons for that kind of thing. Um, so in talking about treatment, um, I want to point out, uh, first of all, that we now define stage one hypertension as over 130 um, millimeters of mercury, and that in terms of where we're going to go in terms of how far to push the patient in terms of treatment is this question. And so I put a picture of plaque rupture on the treatment threshold guidelines for blood pressure to sort of associate in our minds that we should be thinking about both of these things together when we're making a treatment decision. So it's not so much about the absolute number, much like we'll talk about with lipids, but the whole clinical picture. So if you have a patient who has an atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk score, right, of greater than, in this slide, 10%, but I would probably say 7.5% would be reasonable too, because that's the statin treatment uh, guidelines, but let's say 10%, um, that starting therapy initially is now what's recommended, as opposed to what we used to would say is, well, let's take three or six months of, you know, diet, exercise, lifestyle changes, etc. Now, in a patient with this kind of atherosclerotic um, score, disease score, risk score, we would treat earlier. And um, that is not always the easiest conversation to have with patients, as I'm sure many of you know. Um, so if we can take a quick stroll down memory lane, we know from the 1980s that we treat hyperlipidemia, right, because of, uh, at, because of, of how it is, how um, innately it is linked to the treatment of atherosclerosis. We didn't have all the medications back then that we had, but they did have cholestyramine, and what was shown at that time was that for every uh, sort of 35% reduction you could get in LDL, you also decreased MACE rates. Um, now this was in patients with hyperlipidemia, so at, at that time LDL greater than 180, so really dealing with patients who had very high cholesterol. But the link has been clear, um, and we've had treatments for this link since then. And, and so that's why we can say it's important to treat that in addition to hypertension when we're talking about disease rates. And of course, now we have a lot more data. All the statin trials have shown huge decreases in LDL. Um, 
and in all cases associated with decrease in event rates, um, heart attack, stroke, and death. Um, and not to belabor it, but we all remember the mechanism of statin HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors working in the liver uh, so that we make uh, less cholesterol and import more from the liver so that we have less circulating cholesterol. Um, the data is similar with respect to lipid management as it is with hypertension, though I don't have an update uh, based on the new guidelines. Um, only a little less than half of people um, who would be eligible to be treated for hyperlipidemia uh, are at goal or are, are on treatment. And there's a lot of reasons for this. So again, to pause, um, you know, I, I read a lot about prevention and I get in my newsfeed every day, um, you know, sort of statin anti-vaxxer literature stuff. Um, so I just shared a few of these. Um, and then the other things that people are sort of bombarded with are sort of, um, you know, medications that don't necessarily have a large target audience or don't necessarily save lives, um, get, have maybe a lot of money spent on them and a lot of marketing um, and get a lot of notoriety. And maybe we don't, you know, treating hypertension, hyperlipidemia, smoking cessation, et cetera. That's a kind of a harder thing to get into the public consciousness. So it's certainly understandable from my from our perspective uh, why we don't have a larger percentage of our population's blood pressure and lipids controlled it's hard to get their attention so i think in order to do this better i think we want to be really clear with who it's appropriate to treat because i'm sure a lot of us will hear from patients oh you guys are just you know um pushing these medications on everybody etc and you don't want to be in that situation where it's like oh well maybe you actually don't need it um, so I want to be clear about who does need it. So four groups of people, according to the latest guidelines. Group one is people with documented atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And I, the star is basically mean that means they could have had a clinical event. So that means, you know, your heart attack patient, your stroke patient, patients with claudication. Um, but it could also be patients who have documented evidence of atherosclerotic disease that you've determined from something else, whether you've gotten an ABI on them, a calcium score, other imaging tests that shows plaque. Those are patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease who should be treated to today's lipid guidelines, which we'll talk about. Um, the second group is patients with LDL greater than 190. Most of those patients will have some form of familial hyperlipidemia uh, and are at increased risk. Group three is people who um, are aged 40 to 75 who have diabetes and have an LDL between 71 and 189. And group four is people aged 40 to 75 without diabetes, same LDL 71 through 189, and who have a pooled cohort ASCVD risk of greater than seven and a half percent, like we were talking about before. So that's that taking all the clinical factors and that's now in the newer guidelines, one of the groups who's appropriate to treat. Um, and then how, how aggressively to treat them. Um, I think I've distilled this into two things. Um, in general, people with known atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or with an LDL of greater than 190 really ought to be aiming for a 50% LDL reduction. And that's accomplished best with high intensity statin therapy, which I've abbreviated HIST just to make the slide fit. Um, and uh, so those in out of the, 
out of these four groups, those two should be on high intensity statin therapy. And in the other groups, patients with diabetes and patients uh, who have high 10-year risk score, they uh, the data is just as strong for moderate intensity statin therapy or a 30 to 50% reduction um, in LDL. Uh, another way to look at it is an LDL goal and primary prevention of less than 100 or a non-HDL cholesterol of less than 130. Whatever way is easier to think of that, um, you know, if a patient's tolerating moderate intensity statin therapy and you've got a 35% reduction in risk, probably doing more just to get them under 100. Um, if they tolerate another medication or an increased dose, that's fine, but you are doing a lot just by getting that 30 to 50% reduction with moderate intensity statin therapy. Um, there's other ways to do this that are less um, science and guideline based, but certainly do work to lower numbers in patients who are interested um, in sort of non-pharmaceutical ways. Um, there's lots of data about how much um, LDL lowering you can get with each of these um, with each of these additives. Um, you have to really commit to it and take a lot of it and really change your diet and exercise and do all that stuff, but some patients will stick with it. And so it's worth it to consider these kinds of things. And I do have a little dot phrase that I give to patients who are initially um, a, a bit suspect of, of recommendations to go ahead and try these. Um, and and, and some people really like them. I would just warn that red rice, red yeast rice um, is the same active ingredient as lovastatin. And so if patients are taking that and they're getting different um, makers, et cetera, it's probably worth checking LFTs once in a while um, and at least pointing out to the patient that they are taking an unregulated amount of lovastatin, which is a lower potency statin with a, a lot of medication to medication interactions, unlike some of the newer um, uh, agents that we use in high intensity patients. So it might actually be safer for them to be on an FDA regulated uh, medications. Speaking of the FDA, um, there are a number of medications that lower LDL um, that are approved by the FDA, in, including statins, uh, azetamibe, covacevalam, uh, or Wellcol, which is a bile acid resin. Bembidoic acid is new and comes in formulations as a pure and mixed with Zetia, which is called Nexlazet, uh, PCSK9 inhibitors, um, Repatha and Praluent marketed in the US, and Lomidipide in patients with familial hyperlipidemia, um, and plasmapheresis um, in patients with really uh, basic, usually uh, familial uh, hyperlipidemic homozygotes with LDLs, you know, greater than 300, even on, even on other treatment. Um, a quick review of, of some of these medications in case um, you're, you're not using them and want a little bit more information. Um, azetamibe is a cholesterol absorption inhibitor uh, and usually decreases um, LDL by a modest amount. Once in a while, you will have a patient who will decrease their LDL significantly on Zetia. Um, and one in eight patients can decrease it by 36%, which is impressive. 10% um, reduction beyond 40 milligrams of simvastatin or 80 milligrams of atorvastatin. So if atorvastatin is going to give you about a 50% reduction in someone's LDL, adding Zetia onto that is about a 60% reduction. It's worth trying because you never really know exactly uh, how much of a lowering you're going to get. But if you have someone with an LDL of 180, um, 
50% obviously would be getting them to 90, which is at goal for primary prevention. But some patients will go down to LDL of 50 with high with 80 milligrams of atorvastatin, and other patients, you know, will still be above 100. And so it's it's worth rechecking the LFTs and cholesterol two to three months after initiating the statin to see if there's anything else we should or could be doing. Um, Colocevalam, um, I use this once in a while. You have to take a lot of it, and it's kind of a difficult uh, regimen, a lot of GI side effects, um, and it raises triglycerides. A lot of our patients, especially type 2 diabetics, already have high triglycerides, so you have to be kind of careful. Um, but this can be helpful um, to lower LDL, specifically when used with a statin, uh, because of the way it works. It doesn't allow the intestine to absorb um, a lot of the uh, bile acids, and so the uh, the uh, liver will pick up its synthesis of LDL, and so the stat the statin really needs to be there uh, so that the liver can't overcome the effect of bile acid resins. Otherwise, you have to use the bile acid resins in such a high dose that they really uh, aren't tolerated by many people. Um, Bembidoic acid uh, is, or Nexlitol, is the newest sort of orally approved uh, agent with some modest uh, data. Uh, behind it, same pathway as the HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor uh, pathway that we all remember sort of memorizing in cholesterol synthesis in medical school. Um, but some kind of interesting data, um, more potent than Zetia, um, and then when mixed with Zetia, it can be, the next Lizette can be, can give you about a 20% decrease to a 25% decrease um, with an adverse event rate that's very favorable. Um, we need to check uric acid or stabilize active gout before starting it because it can lead to increased uric acid levels. Um, the uh, the other thing that's been associated with this medication um, are Achilles uh, tendon injuries, um, which I think there's more data that needs to be out there before we can make a decision on that. But if you have uh, patients with history of, of cartilage problems, maybe not the best patient to try this on. Uh, secondary prevention, uh, we're talking about patients who have had an event, and those patients' goal LDL is less than 70, and triglycerides less than 150. Um, and uh, I won't belabor uh, this slide because it's kind of busy, uh, but just to say that if they've had an event, we're going to be even more aggressive uh, about it. And there's this is this is available, and I can send this to whoever might want it if they want to study it. Uh, a little bit more deeply, but this is where we get into using medications like injectable PCSK9 inhibitors, which are an incredible way uh, to really drop LDL and reduce event rates, uh, and even using some other uh, newer medications uh, in patients who have had events despite being on statin therapy. Um, the lipid medications that can be used that are indicated to reduce major adverse cardiac event rates are statins, the PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, Repatha and Praluent, um, and Icosapen ethyl, which is purified uh, epiprosinoic acid, or Vasipa. Um, and I'll go through a little bit of data on that, but just to say that Icosapen ethyl um, is a fish oil, is a purified fish oil. PCSK9 inhibitors are an antibody-based uh, injectable medication that um, decrease 
LDL even more potently so than high-intensity statin therapy. And when added to statins, uh, reduce LDL even further in a safe way that prevents recurrent uh, events to some degree, which I'll talk about. Very complicated mechanism, but basically allows the uptake receptor to stick around longer so that it can recycle more cholesterol and get it out of the serum. And we see just incredible drops in LDL with this medication and it's generally very well tolerated. Um, first, a word about icosapent. So I was very uh, inspired at the most recent, uh, or I, I should say the last actual live meeting I went to in 2019 before the pandemic about um, icosapent ethyl um, for treatment of patients with even mild hypertriglyceridemia who had had cardiac events and who were on a statin, showing very significant decrease in event and death rates with um, icosapent. So basically, what the, the learning point for me was in patients that are on statins whose triglycerides still remain 150, that those are some patients who could be identified as possibly getting more benefit from further medical therapy. Um, and this was published in January, shortly after um, this medication then uh, was more widely prescribed and then the pandemic hit. So I haven't seen, we haven't seen many patients on this, um, but this is another medication that's very well tolerated. Um, it doesn't drop triglycerides in all patients very potently, um, but if you have patients with uh, triglycerides greater than 150 and less than 400, um, despite statin therapy who you are concerned about or who have had event rates, uh, this can be a very effective and well-tolerated medication that actually has data behind it to prevent events. And then, of course, the PCSK9 inhibitors, um, two major trials um, that have been published showing significant, uh, statistically significant decreases uh, in composite endpoints um, when used on top of statin therapy. And I guess one question that remains to be seen is, you know, most patients do tolerate their statins despite there being a lot in the press about how difficult they are to tolerate. It's, the data really only suggests it's about maybe six to 10% of patients that can't tolerate it, which isn't much different from placebo. Um, but what about patients who, who truly are statin intolerant? And in many of those kinds of patients, this may be an appropriate medication as well. What we don't have is randomized trials of patients off statin to sort of show that. But I think at proof of concept, at least, if you have patients on the maximum dose of statin that they can tolerate and they're not at goal, so LDL less than 100 for primary prevention or LDL less than 70 for secondary prevention, this medication probably more so than azetamibe and more so than bembidoic acid is going to get a real big percentage decrease in LDL. Uh, not that oral medications aren't worth trying, they totally are, but if you're not close or if they haven't tolerated those other ones, um, this medication is very effective. Um, finally, a couple words on diabetes and then maybe we can open it up for questions. Um, we talked about hypertension, we talked about hyperlipidemia, and in diabetes, we've for a long time have been working very hard to get people's glucoses under control without really seeing much uh, in the way in terms of decreased cardiovascular outcomes. And as we all know, patients with diabetes are at the highest risk for uh, adverse cardiac uh, events, and that's their leading cause of death. There's a bunch of different mechanisms um, for this, but it is interesting to think about 
uh, how how far we've come in terms of diabetes management, but at the same time, not as far in terms of um, outcome prevention uh, in terms of cardiovascular disease. So there's two new, newer kinds of medications that I'm sure are in use in most of our practices, um, specifically SGLT2 receptor antagonists and GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, the uh, sodium glucose cotransporter 2 receptor antagonists uh, work on the kidney and they block proximal tubular glucose reabsorption, um, lowering hemoglobin A1C um, and maybe weight uh, in some patients. Um, and according to the newer guidelines are reasonable to use uh, in diabetic patients who are not controlled with diet, exercise, weight loss, and metformin. Um, and then there's data emerging with regard to preventing MACE and CHF hospitalizations that's beyond the scope of uh, today's uh, talk with regard to CHF, but that is another sort of primary indication for these medications now um, from a cardiac perspective. Um, the big trial um, several years ago on SGLT2 receptor antagonists showed safety and efficacy. Here you see um, hemoglobin A1C uh, being dropped uh, in a statistically significant way uh, over time. Uh, and outcomes, more importantly, uh, in combined outcomes, cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI or non-fatal stroke, a statistically significant difference, um, hazard ratio 0.86, um, this medication over placebo um, in terms of outcomes. Death from cardiovascular causes also statistically significant, as you can see here in panel B, um, and hospitalization from heart failure, death from any cause. So that's led to a lot of excitement um, in cardiology at least about maybe a different way to treat our diabetic patients, um, many of whom are on metformin, but also sulfonylureas, pioglitazone, those kinds of things that do control sugars, but haven't been shown to prevent some of the microvascular and macrovascular complications of diabetes, that this might be a way forward um, in doing that. So there's certainly been a lot of excitement, uh, at least from a medical standpoint, um, in using these agents. Um, GLP, uh, one, receptor agonists uh, increase glucose-dependent insulin secretion, delays gastric emptying, decreases postprandial glucagon in food intake, lowers hemoglobin A1C um, quite remarkably, actually, does lead to some weight loss in many patients. Um, the CHF benefits are not there, and the MACE benefits um, are less clear. Um, again, just showing weight and hemoglobin A1C decreases with this medication, um, which is important to a lot of our patients. And uh, primary outcome, cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, a non-fatal stroke, combined outcomes um, did show uh, superiority, um, I'm sorry, non-inferiority, the hazard ratio is statistically significant, but didn't quite make it uh, in terms of the 0.05 confidence interval. Um, and, and you can see some of these other, uh, no, no change in death. Um, I thought this slide is sort of helpful. So these two new medications that have kind of been coming out at around the same time, different times to consider different ones. Um, so I'll leave this up here so people can can look at it. Important to remember that some of these may have blood pressure, like the SGLT2, for example, may have blood pressure effects, may have electrolyte effects. It's something to be um, wary of if you're going to use them. Um, and then some reasons maybe not to use them in your in certain kinds of diabetic patients. And then finally, um, 
the 10A inhibitors or anticoagulants in patients with stable uh, disease. So if you have patients um, who are uh, known to have uh, cardiovascular disease, peripheral arterial disease, or both um, are very high-risk patients, there was a significant decrease uh, in, again, that same combined endpoint using rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams twice a day in addition to aspirin 81 milligrams uh, daily over three years and a significant decrease uh, in event rates. Um, although there was more bleeding, the net clinical benefit number needed to treat is 84. Um, and so, yes, you will have a few more bleeding, so would not recommend using this in patients in whom bleeding is a major concern, but decreasing death stroke MI uh, with the use of rivaroxaban, two and a half milligrams twice a day. I would say this is, of all of the interventions, probably the least uh, used and probably appropriately so because it does have the risk of bleeding, um, but something that you might be seeing going forward in some of our higher risk patients. So to summarize, in secondary prevention, um, systolic blood pressure less than 130, ACER ARB um, if they're diabetic or have cardiomyopathy, um, high-intensity statin therapy to goal LDL less than 70, um, PCSK9 inhibitor use if they're on a max-tolerated statin or statin intolerant, icosapen, if they're, which is the fish oil um, epiprosinoic acid, if they're fasting triglycerides are greater than 150 on max-tolerated statin, um, aspirin, 81 milligrams if they have a history of a heart, heart attack uh, or they have a stent or they've had a stroke, um, SGLT2 receptor antagonists if they're diabetic, and rivaroxaban uh, for high-risk patients who are not at particularly high bleeding risk at, at the lowest dose. Great, wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Schenkerman. Um, a good review and speaks to many of us. I know we have a lot in primary care and general internal medicine in the audience um, for whom prevention is a passion. Um, so thanks for this talk. Uh, I have some questions that have been posted already, and I invite the audience to continue to go ahead and put in more. Um, let me just begin with, um, this pertains to uh, looking at risk stratification for primary prevention. Do you make any differentiation um, with regard to type 1 versus type 2 diabetes? With regard to hypertension and lipid management or regard to choices in terms of diabetes control? Uh, with regard to hypertension and hyperlipidemia, trying yeah. to, yeah. So uh, great, that's a great question. I don't. Um, so, I mean, most of our patients, I mean, our, I don't have a lot of young patients, you know, who are in the sort of 17 to 31, 35 year old type one diabetics. Um, and many of them don't have a lot of the cardiovascular uh, complications yet. Um, we certainly have type one diabetics or hyperlipidemics young who have, you know, heart attacks and strokes. It's not to say that we don't have that, but we often don't see those patients in the preventive you know, space. Um, I would say that in terms the data that I'm most familiar with does not really make a distinction in type 1 or type 2 diabetes in terms of blood pressure goals and lipid management. Um, how you get there, because, you know, obviously type 1s need insulin and the type 2s don't, and then some of the medications that I just reviewed cannot be used in type 1 diabetics, and I didn't say that specifically in a non-diabetes talk, but, but just to say that 
yes, we should be thinking about our, our younger type 1 diabetics in that same way as being at very high risk early on in life for inflammation of the blood vessels um, leading to atherosclerosis and their blood pressure goals and lipid goals should be um, in the primary prevention range. So LDL less than 100, um, triglycerides less than, less than 150 if you can get there. Um, sometimes you get there with the very medications you're using for diabetes management, so we don't need to necessarily jump to some of those other medications, and certainly their blood pressure. Um, it used to be that the goal for diabetics for a short time was less, less than, for, for systolic blood pressure, the goal for non-diabetics. I think that's changed, and so now the goal is less than 130 for everyone. That may get lower over time, I'm not sure, but I, I don't make that distinction. Great, thanks so much for your comments. Uh, another quick question here. Some people may be familiar from before with the med medication Lovasa, um, sort of high dose fish oil. Can you help us understand the difference between that medication which has been along, around longer versus icosapent ethyl, um, sort of effectiveness and cost considerations? Yeah, so both are not the easiest always to get covered. So I think that's an important thing to say. Um, I have a dot phrase that I use um, specifically for icosapent. So the, the main difference, to go back to that question, um, Lovasa has been along, around a long time, and that is DHA and EPA. I, I don't remember what DHA stands for, but it's, it's purified fish oil, but it's not just EPA, whereas Vasipa is um, just EPA. So Lovasa is approved for patients in whom you have triglycerides that are greater than 500 despite other medications. So you statin or a fibrate or both, and then you still have high, and it's, it's well tolerated and it works very well at four grams a day to lower people's triglycerides to prevent pancreatitis, to prevent metabolic abnormalities. But it's not approved for uh, event rate uh, reduction. And I think that's the main thing. The Vasipa has come along in the last couple years and is sort of another level of purification and how exactly that matters um, could maybe be explained by somebody other than me, but I think they don't really know. It has to do maybe with how HDL transports things or how stable HDL is versus LDL, et cetera. But it's just um, epiprostanoic acid without DHA. And that's where they think the um, event rates decrease has come down because there's literally sort of no inflammatory fat in it. It's sort of just this thing that may help HDL be more stable and some of the other endothelial cell mechanisms become more uh, more stable. Um, it, I, I will put in my recommendations when I make that recommendation, I'll put in my dot phrase that this medication has been approved by the REDUCE-IT trial to in patients with triglycerides greater than 150, et cetera, because the insurance companies will often say, their triglycerides aren't that bad, they're 204, you haven't tried X, Y, Z, but mm -hmm. those things haven't been shown to reduce event rates, and this has. So, so that's where I'm coming from, but that's the, that's the structural difference between it and Lovasa. I don't think, some people, I, I don't know why, but some patients respond very well to Lovasa and they drop their triglycerides a lot, other patients have a much more modest effect on triglycerides. Um, like maybe they go from 250 to 180. It's not even that 
you know, much of a thing. And what to do with those patients, I don't think is completely clear. That's why from a cardiac perspective, we always kind of go back to, are there outcomes data to support the, the use of this in general? Great, thank you. We have about five minutes left and maybe we can get to three more questions or so. The next one should be short. How much does a calcium scan cost? Uh, great question. Um, so it depends on availability and it depends what the institution is doing. And that I'm glad that question was asked because I think that's one of the questions that we can talk about what we can do as individuals to help patients, but how should we sort of structure the organization, the insurance product, et cetera, to sort of from a population health perspective is a bit of a different question. I think that question kind of gets to that. So in, in our city, um, if you look at calcium scoring prices, they can go anywhere from $99 um, up to about $479. They're not, it's not covered by insurance pretty much in any case. Um, we do do them at many Providence locations. I've heard patients um, come back to me with somewhere between around $250 um, to the best of, of my knowledge, but I haven't I haven't been here long enough to really price that. Um, but that's certainly something that people can shop and there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, but it's important not to submit it to insurance because then it will be denied and delayed. Um, and and to have that discussion with the patient that that's not something that insurance is currently offering. But that's a great question and really brings up the idea, you know, is this something that we should make sort of easier, you know, to get, <laughs> you know, to, to get patients identified uh, in whom a physician who has thought about it might think that might be a helpful test. So thank you for that. Great, thank you. Here I have a comment um, followed with a follow-up question. Um, I appreciated your focus on actual modifiable risk factors and behaviors such as alcohol, smoking, diet, exercise, without mention of recommending weight loss. I no longer recommend intentional weight loss to patients, but rather focus on modifiable behaviors as I haven't seen clear evidence that intentional weight loss is an evidence-based recommendation. So uncoupling behaviors from specifically weight loss. And the question is, was this intentional? Do you also avoid specific weight loss recommendation? Have you seen harms of weight cycling? Wow. Um, so yeah, thanks for that. That's a that's a great um that's like probably a whole nother topic that <laughs> makes me think about think about this because I do have a lot of these kinds of discussions with people. Um yeah, I don't the only time that I recommend weight loss is in patients in whom I think that weight loss may lead to advances in lipid management or hypertension, because I have the sort of I'm I'm lucky that I can kind of focus in cardiology on outcome prevention. So if I have a patient who's heavy and has high LDL and a high hemoglobin A1C, who if less heavy might lose those risk factors and they've already had a heart attack or a stroke or they have atherosclerosis, I might make those recommendations as part of a number of recommendations that may also include medications. I don't spend any time telling patients who are overweight, who haven't had events or who don't have those other risk factors to lose weight for the sake of losing weight. That's not a discussion that I have with patients because I don't think that would be completely um, 
that that would not be completely covered by data. Um, I, I guess if it were, I might not have it anyway because I'm not sure how that would come up for me, but I'd be very interested in hearing more about what this um, what this person has has to say because I might I might learn something about how I approach my um, patient conversations with regard to weight loss. Great. Looks like we're looking at future grand rounds. Um, yeah. <laughs> I do want to be respectful that we are at nine o'clock. Some people may be dropping off. I may close with just one last question as a follow up to the coronary CT. Um, thanks for the post from Dr. Jim Beamer that you can get a calcium score for $150 at Epic Imaging. Um, and as a follow up to that, one last question. Um, here we have a proposed case scenario, 60 year old man who exercises three to four hours a week, well-controlled blood pressure, no current CVD, doesn't smoke, eats healthy, isn't obese, but triglycerides are 240, LDL 170, HDL 160, and so the ASCVD risk is 11%. Would you just jump to a high-intensity statin, or might this be a case where you're looking at a calcium score? At 60? Right, 60-year-old yeah, man. Yeah, great case. Um, it, well, I think it depends on whether the patient will, I don't know what the family history is, but if the patient has a family history, they might be more willing to take a statin. And if they're one of those people who says, well, you know, I sort of define my success in life by how few pills I take, that is someone a calcium score would be really helpful because if you can show them plaque, you know, and I've done that, <laughs> that, that changes a lot of people's minds. Um, and if you don't have any plaque and the patient really doesn't want to talk about statin therapy, um, you have some reason maybe you can nag the next patient instead. Um, this, What I would do in this patient, um, from a cardiovascular perspective, I'm probably going to try to convince this patient to go on a moderate intensity statin therapy. Um, it probably only needs a, you know, a 30 to 50% reduction with the absence of other risk factors. Um, and I think moderate intensity statin therapy would be very reasonable um, to decrease this patient's event risk um, and even do that with a calcium score. Because what we don't have, right, we don't know if you have a time zero at, at age 61, when is the next calcium score due? Or what needs to happen to that patient before that needs to get reassessed? We don't have that kind of data like we do for colonoscopy, uh, for example. Um, and so it's really like a one-time risk. So what you might wanna do when you calculate that patient's 10-year risk, calculate their lifetime risk too and see because you know, people switch doctors, people switch networks, et cetera. And an opportunity that you have now at age 60 may be the last time that's ever addressed. So I think that's a really germane question and a really great way to end, actually. So thank you for that, um, is that we don't have that many opportunities to make that that change. But if you can, if you feel comfortable with um, 20 milligrams of atorvastatin in that patient, um, that that would probably be similar to something that I would do in a patient like that. So thank you very, very much. Right. Well, we will end there. Thank you so much for your expertise and thanks to our audience. We will see you next week. Thank you.